might be new, and that's fine. Okay, so here we go. Um, we move into uh, chap chapter 3, and as I said, uh, we're basically studying soteriology, which is the study of salvation. Um, you know, th there's, there's theology, and then underneath theology, there's all these branches of theology, and this is soteriology, okay, the study of salvation. So where we finished up last week was, remember we were talking about dualism? And the reason why dualism doesn't work is because um, the bad power, right? There's supposed to be these two co-equal powers, good and bad. And the bad power um, ultimately has to gain what it has from the good power. So a bad power or evil in itself cannot generate anything. It can only corrupt a thing. So when we say something is evil, we say that it lacks a good that it ought to have. So if we say an evil action, okay, it, it lacks a goodness that it ought to have. So evil is always a negation theologically. And this is in the tradition of, uh, of, of Augustine and Aquinas. Evil is a negation. It's, it's a lack of something that ought to be present. So um, if, there's, if there is this negative power, the point is, wh where does it get its stuff to corrupt? Well, it always has to lean on on the goodness. It has to lean on being itself, which is a good. And so how do you corrupt something which, which is existence? Well, again, you're, you're taking something initially good, which therefore the bad power couldn't have created. Um, it can only corrupt it. So then we, you know, he leaves off as he's going through sort of taking apart dualism. And there's many, many different sects, again, uh, uh, throughout the history of of Christianity that, that kind of went into dualism and, and uh, it's one of the common, what the church would say, it's, it's a very common heresy throughout the ages. So then he says, well, well, no, this, this actually gets us at what this evil power is in the universe. There is an evil power from the Christian perspective and, and it is, uh, in fact, something that was good that became corrupted, okay? And so, of course, we're we're back at Satan. And that, that's where he, he starts us with chapter 3. Right? Christians then believe that an evil power has made himself for the present the prince of the world. But here's the thing. He says, this is really strange. Like, if you have an omnipotent God, all-powerful God, and an omnibenevolent God, a loving God, so you have an all-powerful and all-loving God, then why would he let this happen? You know, why would, clearly this is not according to his will. He doesn't will evil. He doesn't will Satan, right? He doesn't desire Satan's existence. He doesn't want evil to be or to exist. Um, so Lewis is saying this is a curious thing. And so he's taking up the question of, of God's will, okay? Which is, again, he hits on these topics, which we could talk for a long time about. And he, you know, he gives us a few paragraphs, and, and that's kind of what I'm trying to do is unpack some of that. So when we talk about God's will, you know, we, we usually talk about his sovereign will and then his, his permissive will, right? So there are things which God clearly desires and wants and ordains, and then there are things that he allows, his permissive will, all right? And that, these, this, is what, this is what Lewis is getting at. And, and he uses the example of, of a mother with her children, 
anyone who's been in authority, which, you know, which is all of it. I mean, it's me, it's you, it's, it's everybody. Anybody who's in authority knows exactly um, what it means to desire something, to have a will, and to express your will that something occur, and then for those to whom it's expressed, it doesn't occur. <laughs> so clean your room. I want you to clean your room. It doesn't happen. Well, does that limit the will of, of the mother, or does it, does it say that the will of the mother is disordered in some way? No. It's, it says something about the one to whom she's directed her will, namely her children. All right? She would prefer the children be tidy, but on the other hand, it is her will which has left the children free to be untidy. You make a thing voluntary, and then half the people do not do it. That is not what you willed, but your will has made it possible. Okay, so if we had a God who forced us to always do the good, which he could do, I mean, God being all-powerful, he could just force everybody he created to always do good. But what would they not have? They wouldn't have freedom, right? So they wouldn't have free will. Um, and and this, this becomes the critical point, and this becomes the point at which we we uh, question all of the existence of evil. We don't really question, I mean, we, we, we might, you know, we might question something like, like hurricanes and why does God allow that to happen, but, but it doesn't concern us quite as much as when somebody uses their freedom for evil, and then we ask, why does this happen? Although I will say that, you know, if you have a child who is suffering, a child who, who has, a, has a grave illness, and the, in those situations, of course, you know, it, sort of the natural evil of a disease to question why would God allow this is, is clearly something that, that many, many people, millions of people um, would question. Okay. So it's probably the same thing in the universe, he says. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go right or wrong. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. I cannot. This is one of the, uh, when I was doing my thesis on Lewis's theodicy, there's another word for you, theodicy, which is the study of sort of, it's not really the study of evil, but it's his, um, a theodicy is sort of the, the explanation of the existence of evil. So when I was doing, uh, when I was doing uh, my, my thesis on this, uh, I had to entertain a lot of contrary positions, you know, by the atheists and such. And, and one such atheist who wrote a book specifically against Lewis said that he could imagine a world in which we had free will, but that we couldn't do evil. We couldn't do horrible things. And, um, I, you know, I found his argument less than persuasive because, you know, what does it mean that God can give us free will, but it can only go so far? You know, it's like... Uh, it's like throwing a, a kid in the pool, you know, a, a little kid in the pool with floaties on. You know, you, you, you're saying go swimming, but not really. They're not really swimming. They're not really free to swim, right? They're limited. So then you would have this limited freedom. Anyway, um, so, so that's one thing to consider. What would it, what would it mean that, that we had limited freedom? So we, we couldn't really turn away from God, but we were still free. I would argue that that sort of freedom is not really a freedom worth having. Um, 
and we've all been in positions, I think, in life where, where we're, um, we're given the possibility of two choices, but the other choice really isn't a choice, you know? Like we're, we're, we're in a situation where it's like, okay, I could do this or I could do that, and, but the other choice is so like bad or not, you know, not pleasing that we would never choose it. Well, it's not really, number one, it's not a hard decision to make, but it's also not really a choice. Um, it, it doesn't have the gravity of, of freedom that, that we would speak of like with sin or, or something like that. Um, okay, so um, if a thing is free to be good, it also is free to be bad. And free will is that which has made evil possible. But why then did God give them free will? This is one of the the quotes I love. Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that work like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of being freely, voluntarily united to him and to each other in an ecstasy of love and delight compared with which the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they must be free. So if you had a limited freedom, so if I could only do this amount, not really any evil, well, Consequently, on the other side, you couldn't really love that much either. For instance, um, I would argue that uh, as, as you're dating, do you remember, any of you remember dating somebody? <laughs> I can remember. Um, and so some of the point of dating, one of the main points of dating is getting to know someone, Right? And the more that you get to know someone, the more that you know them, sort of intellectually know about them, the more that you're able to really love them, okay? So that the knowing serves the loving, the intellect serves the will in that, in that sense. Um, and it goes back, it goes, it kind of, it can, it can work reciprocally as well. But um, the point is that without the the freedom to love greatly, um, God would not be able to love us or be in this relationship of love that he truly wants. So to be in a relationship of love that he wants, which is a very, very intimate relationship and, and for eternity, he needs us to be free. He needs us to be able to truly give ourselves to him. And so, uh, um, this is why, I mean, this is one of the reasons why priests, you know, we still do the celibacy thing, you know, which, which in this world doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. But kind of the point is there's people, you know, men and women who choose to devote their lives entirely to God, to say, you know what, by the way, this is what we're all going to do. You're not married in heaven. Till death do you part. You're not, I'm going to love you for eternity. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, probably if you're both if you're both there, um, but the love that the love that has been revealed to us that we're going to enjoy is principally about God loving us and us loving Him. And there's a there's an individual dimension to that and a corporate dimension to that. And so marriage is an anticipation of that, so that 
hopefully a, a husband and wife learn through the use of their freedom, right, to give themselves to one another. And, and we know that this is incredibly hard. You know, priesthood is incredibly hard. Marriage is incredibly hard. But the idea is that we're all in training. We're all training how to use our freedom better and better to love deeper and deeper. And, and hopefully also with the Lord, you know, even now. So, of course, God knew what would happen if people used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. And he says, well, you know, we can disagree with him, but the problem with disagreeing with God, I mean, once you get to the point where, <laughs> once you, get to the point where you say God exists, God is sovereign, God is perfect, and once you assent to that, I mean, if you're an atheist, you can be like, I disagree with God, who cares? But um, you can do anything as an atheist, which is why people choose it. But once you decide to, to assent to God, you know, the existence of God and a loving God and a powerful God and an omnipotent God, he knows everything and he's always existed. As soon as you make that move, then arguing with what he's done seems kind of silly. Well, God, why did you create the world like you did? Well, I mean, we can start to argue with him, but just like Job, if you read the book of Job, you know how that ended. He argues and argues and argues and argues and argues, and then God reveals himself. He just shows up. And Job sees him as he is and just says, I have no more questions. (laughs) He never gets an answer to why God allowed him to suffer. Lewis also, uh, in, in his uh, novel, Till We Have Faces, uh, which I think is a great, it's kind of Job-esque. It has a very similar kind of, uh, uh, it, he goes through sort of questions of, of evil and free will, and then ultimately there's that, that sort of uh, encounter with God. And um, so anyway, he says, well, you know, go ahead and argue with him, but he's the one who gave you rationality in the first place. Um, And so he says, if God thinks the state of war in the universe is a price worth paying for free will, that is, for making a live world in which creatures can do real good or harm and something of real importance can happen, instead of a toy world, which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it as we may take it, it is worth paying. He also says something here that I I don't, I don't know if you found this intriguing, I, I did. Um, just to reflect on that, uh, he says that, you know, why did, because we can ask, we can have these objections, why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? And he says, no, the, the better or the higher in nature that God creates a thing, the more destructive it can become. So um, a simple person is probably the best person, you know, as far as relating to God, because I'll pick on my grandmother, because she doesn't know how to use a computer. Um, <laughs> she'll never listen to the podcast. And, um, you know, and she's not, she's not, I don't mean she's dumb. I just mean that, because she's not, she's really not. I mean, after decades of watching EWTN, she, um, she quizzes me all the time. But, but she doesn't really ask questions about existence. She's just like, I believe. Maybe it's just the Polish Italian. She's just stubborn. I just believe, you know. I just believe, and that's what I, I'm Catholic. That's who I am. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's. I think she's better off than me because I'm questioning my existence, the existence of reality. I'm like, no, you're not, Father. Yeah, I am. I'm reading Heidegger right now, and you don't know who he is, which is fine. Don't read him because <laughs> um, he's just going to mess with your head. But. Um, 
so, but, but the point is that, that Lewis is saying is that the, the sort of the, the greater the intelligence a person has, the greater they can fall. And then he's alluding to, of course, angels, you know, ultimately, who are pure spirit, pure intelligence, right? And so Satan being, I mean, as the tra tradition holds, Satan is, is, a, is a fallen angel. Um, and the, so the greater a thing, the more it can become corrupted. The greater the good, the greater the corruption. Um, which is why, it's another reason why, uh, um, it, it's another reason why you, you will see a lot of different types of scandals with, um, with priests or ministers or, or even religious, because the, the closer they are, the, the further it is really in many ways when they do fall, you know. And I'm not talking about like child abuse. I'm talking about just like your average father ran away with a woman kind of thing, you know. <laughs> um, just your average scandal. <laughs> so here's here's a good one. What it, you know for us to reflect on is what is the sin of Satan, um, and the sin of Satan is, as we believe, really, the, the sin is, is original sin. It's the sin of, that we look at as, um, and it's really kind of every sin, but um, what made original sin so profoundly bad is that Adam and Eve had not yet been tainted by sin. So um, as the tradition holds, St. Augustine largely developing this, um, the effects of original sin on, on the person are a darkened intellect and a weakened will. All right, so we just can't know as, as well, we can't see as clearly, we can't understand as well, and we can't choose. We're so conflicted. We, we want to do the good, and then we never do it, you know, or we, we don't do it nearly as much as we want to. We're so pulled. But, but, but at a, um, Adam and Eve or our first parents, you can call them, you know, Bob and Betty if you want. It doesn't really matter because um, we don't take that part literally, like, you know, that they had those names. I mean, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that God created all things in harmony with himself and gave free will to people who are uncorrupted. And what made the sin so grave is their uncorruption, their lack of corruption. So the sin of Satan. Um, and he says this, a reasonable and traditional guess is this. The moment you have a self... There's a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God. In fact, that was the, the sin of Satan, and that was the sin he taught the human race. You know the translation of, of uh, the name Michael, the archangel, right? Michael, the, the name is a question or an or a emphatic, I don't know what you would call it, uh, which is who is like God. So he's the one who cries out against Satan, who is like God, um, because Satan wanted to be like God. So that was the sin of Satan, the sin that he taught the human race. Some people think the fall of man had something to do with sex, but that's a mistake. Um, and that clearly is from the, even, even from the, uh, the story of both stories of creation that are in, the, in Genesis. Um, the book of Genesis, rec you know, says there is a corruption uh, which includes our sexual nature following the fall, but it, that wasn't the cause. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they had created themselves, be their own masters. 
invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside, apart, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come, come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery, etc. So, and this is, this is uh, if you really look at your sins, if I look at my sins, if we look at all sin, it, it's ultimately a preference of something else, um, uh, a preference of something else to God. You know, something else to serve us, some other pleasure, some other happiness, some other people get lost in money, they get lost in substances, they get lost in relationships, they get lost in, in, in sex, they get lost in all kinds of things. And every single one, you know, we, we all have our favorites and, uh, you know, we attempt it in different ways. Um, but ultimately, they're all um, a, a sort of rejection of God, okay? A turning in on the, the uh, the, 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 the classical sort of, the translation for it is a turning in on the self. Um, I believe it's incurvatio ad se, but don't write that down because my, I can't, can't remember for sure. I'd have to look it up. But a, a curving in on the self, looking, a ge- navel gazing kind of, you know. It's, it's a, that's how it's described. You turn in on yourself and you don't look for God. You look for yourself, right? You're looking out for yourself. And so he says, look, the reason why this can never exist is simply because God created us and he created us um, as sort of uh, um, as an engine that needs a fuel. And, uh, you know, our souls are the engine and the fuel is God and his grace. And so um, he created uh, humanity to run on him, you know, to be fueled by him. Um, And he says, you know, there is no other happiness. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. So, you know, the, the people who might say, and they're, they're not bad people. Well, they might be bad people, but not for this position, per se, you know, that, that they're spiritual, they're not religious, you know, that's kind of the hip thing to say, um, and because uh, religion often doesn't look that great anyway, so instead of that, I'm just going to be spiritual, and I'm going to be eclectic, and I'm going to pick this, and pick this, and pick this, and pick this, and I'm going to design my own sort of um, uh, transcend, transcendent experience, whatever that is. I'm just going to do it myself. Okay, well, but as soon as, again, it's the same thing as the other thing I said, as soon as you make the move to God exists, and then a further move to he's all-loving and all-powerful, and a further move to he's actually communicated to us, like, you know, the Bible and stuff. As soon as you make those moves, as soon as you're in on that, as soon as somebody says, I believe in Christ, then it's all over. You can't just start making your own stuff up. I mean, you can. You can do whatever you want. Freedom, we already covered that. But, but as soon as you start to name the Lord as the Lord, as soon as you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, but I don't, I don't care about all this religion stuff, you can't do that. Because then you ignore all the stuff he talked about. You ignore the fact that God created a church, right? He, he created, uh, who did he call in the very beginning? Old Testament. Who is the one man? 
I'll just go through this because it's kind of fun. He called him from the town of Ur, Abram. And he changed his name to... And he said, I will make of you and your descendants a great nation. The Hebrew is something like this. And I cannot write or anything, so it's a translation. I will make of you a great kahal. Just go with it. (laughs) People, nation, okay? Um, And so he he makes a people. He he brings them together. It's very very clear. I'm taking this guy. I change his name. I'm going to make you and your descendants. I'm going to make you a great nation. You, You will be my people, and I will be your God, right? This covenant that he makes with his people. Um, New Testament, what does Jesus do to um, when he founds his church? He takes Simon and guess, guess where uh, Kahal gets translated? It gets traded Ecclesia which gets translated, that's Greek. It's not, you know, the squiggly Greek. Um, and uh, ultimately, it gets translated to church. They mean the same thing. So he does the same thing. That's why it made perfect sense when he did it. When he, when he, when he changed Simon P, Simon's name to Peter, they're like, oh, like Abraham. They all knew the stories. They knew what, what was going on. It was very intentional. I'm going to make Simon upon you. I will. You are the rock upon which I will build my church. Same thing. It's clear, you know. The same thing, you know. The the uh, when he when he's uh, when he's doing the Last Supper. Last Supper, which is the uh, you know the uh, um, the Passover meal, right? The Passover meal. What, what was what was going on in the Passover meal? Remember, it's right right before the. The angel of death comes, the tenth plague to kill the firstborn male child. Okay, well, if 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 you're going to escape from from the Israel or from the from the Egyptians, roast a lamb, unleavened bread, because your people in flight, kill the lamb, splatter the blood on the doorpost. The angel of death will pass by you. All right, and it will save you. You will be saved when you eat this meal, and then they they go out and they're saved. And so then he keeps giving them all these bread images, right, in the desert, etc. And then Jesus comes along. He's like, by the way, I am the bread. If you feed on me, if you feed on my flesh and blood, you will have life within you. And the disciples are like, mm. it's John chapter 6. Most people leave. His disciples are there. They're, they're like, well, we followed you this far, so we're in, you know. And then uh, a while later, on the night of Passover, takes the bread, takes the wine, and he says, this is my body, this is my blood, and he ties it to the Passover meal, which is the meal of salvation, of rescue, of passing over, right, <coughs> saving you from death. It's, so for the Jews, they're like, oh, I get it, perfect sense, makes perfect sense. It's, it's clear. So when you look at the Old Testament through the New Testament, it's not like, you know, just the 33 years of Jesus, right? It's like 
thousands of years. It's like 3,000 3, years? I don't know, something like that. We'll call it three through Jesus. I think it's five up till us. Okay, so where am I at? So, oh, that's good. It kind of feeds into where I'm going. Hey, that's, I'm a really good teacher. Um, <laughs> there is a chapter on humility. Uh, <laughs> we're not there yet. We're going to get there. Never too soon. Okay, so God cannot give us a happiness and a peace and peace apart from his, himself because the very reason he created us. You remember this from the Baltimore Catechism. Who, do you remember, Faye, the answer of Baltimore? Why did God create us? Right? Yeah, to know him, to love him, to serve him um, in this life and to be happy with him in the, in the next. He created us first so that he might love us and then desire for us to love him in return. So if that's how he created, then he is our happiness, ultimately, right? Okay, so then how did God do this throughout history? How did he work? How did he communicate his will? How did he communicate salvation? How we're to be happy, etc.? And Lewis says, well, he's going to point out three things. Number one, he left us conscience, all right? The sense of right and wrong. And all throughout history, there have been people trying, some of them very hard to obey it. None of them ever quite succeeded. Secondly, he sent the human race what I call good dreams. I mean, these queer stories scattered all through the heathen religions about a God who dies and comes to life again. And by his death has somehow given new life to men. I think he's actually getting this from Chesterton, from the everlasting man, if, if you want to look that up. But... Because, um, you know, one of, the, one of the retorts about Christianity is, well, you know, there's all these pagan religions that talk about a God dying and rising, and, you know, there's all these ideas out there. And uh, so, obviously, this is how the argument goes. Obviously, Christianity is just the same as them, you know. And Chesterton takes that on. And he's like, well, I mean, you could, you could go at it that way, or you could say that, in fact, God has implanted the idea the, it's, it's in nature itself. Like, like all of nature has this dying and rising uh, dynamic, right? The acorn dies, and then what does it become? An oak, right? The caterpillar dies, and then it becomes a butterfly, <laughs> you know? So the dying and rising concept is, is permeated throughout creation. So you could say, ah, oh, it's just chance, atoms spinning around, and thing blew up at some point and and the earth cooled to this temperature just so it could perfectly preserve life and it's all chance and there's no design okay i mean you could you could take it that way i i think it's actually more plausible that there's an intelligence behind all that who actually programmed into nature all of these concepts that ultimately even you know were were expressed within you know, pagan religions. And ultimately, God, because you, you see it, God, you, there's all these religions going on at the same time with Judaism, right? I mean, there's, uh, and it's interesting too, because, you know, there, there's a whole question of like all-male priesthood. I don't know if that's still a, a thing anymore, but like within the, the Catholic tradition. But, but, but even when he, he founded his, his kahal, his church with, with the Jews, um, there were all these other religions who had female priests, etc. I mean, it was common. But he was very specific with what he did with the Jews. 
totally different. And, you know, the idea of a personal God who spoke to his people and gave them, you know, a rule of how to, of how to live and outlined it, communicated directly with them. Um, totally different than all of the other religions. So good dreams is what Lewis says. He, he gave these ideas that ultimately would blossom into fruition when Jesus came. Thirdly, he selected a particular people and then spent centuries hammering into their heads the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him and that he cared about right conduct. Because the Old Testament is a huge problem. It's a huge problem. How do you explain polygamy in the Old Testament? How do you explain uh, God's people you know, just taking over the Holy Land by and slaughtering all the people there? How do, you, how do you explain all of the evil in the Old Testament and say, well, God just willed it? It doesn't sound like Christianity. It does sound like Islam, you know, God's absolute will. Whatever God wills is, is, is just true. Um, that's a whole other issue. Um, but, you know, but what we find is if, if we say, okay, well, basically what God did is he took a fairly primitive people and so that they could be a sign to all of the other nations, spoke directly to those people. I mean, if, if you're going to, um, you know, if, if, I don't know, if you're in any kind of organization and you want to you start sort of a new initiative, what do you do? You take a small group of people within the organization and you form them and you train them and, and you bring about a certain sort of excellence in them that will then permeate the rest of the organization, okay? That's what God did with humanity. That's what he did with the Israelites. So were they hearing things perhaps imperfectly? Yeah, that's pretty clear because they're going back and forth and back and forth. They're being faithful, they're being unfaithful, and God just keeps hammering them, you know, hammering them, bringing them back, hammers them, sends them the prophets. They kill the prophets. He hammers them again. Um, until they, and then when finally the time, in the fruition of time, you know, um, he sends his son because now it's time to bring it all home, right? Now it's time to, to give the, the conclusion of, of the story of his revelation in Jesus Christ. All right. Then comes the real shock. Oh, this is great. I'm going to read most of this. This, this is classic stuff here. All right, then comes the real shock. Now remember that, no, I'll just read it. You know, it's one of those things, you explain it first, or you read it first, and then you explain it, and then you read it, and then you find that you already explained it, and then it kind of ruins it when you read it. It's one of those things. So I'm just going to read it. All right, then comes the real shock. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says he always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now let us get this clear. Among pantheists, like the Indians, dot not feather. I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, but I mean, you know, Far East Indians, you know. Among pantheists, like the Indians, anyone might say that he was a part of God or one with God. There would be nothing odd about that. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. God in their language, and because it had been hammered into him for centuries, God in their language meant 
the being outside the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. He grew up a Jew. He knew Judaism, right? And so for him to claim these things leaves us with only, and this is the famous Lewis Trilemma, which is written on the board, the famous true trilemma, it it only leaves us with three possible um, explanations. But we'll continue. One part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man, himself unrobbed and untrodden on, who announced that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Asinine fatuity is the kindest description we should give of this kind of conduct. Yet that's what Jesus did. He told people that their sins were forgiven and he never waited to consult all the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. Does that make sense? So claiming to be God as a Jew, I mean, it's just not something you would do to claim to be God because of their understanding, right? And, And what he's trying to say is, well, he's not talking about just being sort of immersed in the divinity or the divine or subsumed into that or, you know, no, he claimed to be the particular God that they had worshiped on the mountains, who had, who had delivered them the law, right? who had led them out of Egypt, that's the God he claimed to be. That's a pretty big claim. That, that's a huge, tremendous claim. And then to forgive sins, you know? All these people come to him, he says, I forgive your sins. And he doesn't consult the person they offended. He just says, because he reacts or he acts to that person as if their sins offended him. You know, I mean, even in the confessional, although I use the words of Jesus to forgive you, I absolve you of your sins. It's not me, it's Jesus. I'm using Jesus' words. But it would be odd for me to say, well, I will forgive you. Well, you mean God, right, Father? No, no, I mean, I'll forgive you. I for, I, Rebecca, I forgive you of your, all your sins against everyone else and God. Somebody would be driving to Flagstaff tonight to talk to the bishop. (laughs) Right? All right. Okay, yet, and this is the strange, this is the strange and significant thing. Even his enemies, when they read the Gospels, do not usually get the impression of silliness and conceit. Still less do unprejudiced readers. Christ says that he is humble and meek, and we believe him not noticing that if he were merely a man, humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we would attribute to some of his sayings, right? (laughs) Claiming to be God? 
Oh, he's so humble. <laughs> Claiming to forgive everybody's sins, he's so humble. No, that's not how we would refer to him. Okay, so here we go. Here's the, here's the kicker. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So the, the trilemma is there are three choices, right? So, so he set it up, the claims of Jesus, you know, the, the actions of Jesus, there's only three possibilities, and, and sort of the, uh, the way that this is, um, uh, what's that called? We have the, the same letter, the alliteration. alliteration, thanks, yeah, yeah, lunatic or Lord. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He's either lying, he's not God, he's nuts, like a poached egg, <laughs> or somebody who says they're a poached egg. Poached eggs aren't actually nuts, although I don't eat them because I don't like them, but that's a different thing. So he's either lying, he's crazy, or he is who he says he is. That's the famous Lewis trilemma, um, as it's referred to. So, you know, and that's such a common thing, right? Oh, great moral teachers like Jesus, right? Only somebody who hasn't read the Bible or completely discredits it could say that or just doesn't understand the scriptures because Jesus constantly is saying he's God constantly saying he forgives sins um, and and the testimony of the witnesses are that he he is God and that he rose from the dead and that he did all this stuff so you know it comes down to what are what are we going to really think and so Lewis puts people into a corner which I think is fantastic um, liar lunatic or Lord okay well, I may not get to five but five isn't as good as four <laughs> Four is really important. So here, here we're, we're going to do, again, we're still doing soteriology and specifically the doctrine of atonement. Okay. Um, so then he says, and again, this is just great because what he's trying to do, um, and again, he's, he's, he's giving these addresses in this is the second book, so I think we're still in 42. Then he writes them later, right, toward the end of the, the 40s. But... Um, what, what he's really trying to do is wake, awaken people from their slumber. That's why he keeps bringing out these things. He keeps saying, no, this is a frightening alternative. So he's caught all of his talks. He just, he's, he's trying to pin people into a corner um, and so that they've got to make a decision. He's either who he says he is or you've you got to reject him as something other, right? Um, and he's constantly trying to say, look, this is the, if you've accepted everything I said up to this point, which is why he started with all that boring stuff, because he was trying to pick off some of the sort of pagans and spiritualists and people who aren't ready to talk about Christianity proper. So he started with all these other sort of things. It was a trick. 
you know, designed to, to suck people in because once he gets them along the road, then he's like, oh, by the way, the only real explanation is this. Ugh. Then they're stuck, right? Then they're all of a sudden they're theists. Ugh. And then he takes it a little further. Um, and this is where he goes. We're faced then with a frightening alternative. The man we're talking about either was and is, just what he said he was, or a lunatic or something worse. Now, it seems to me obvious that he's neither a lunatic nor a fiend. It's obvious. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he, is, he was and is God. God has landed on this enemy-occupied world in human form. And what would be the purpose of that? What would be the reason he came, and this, this follows in on, oh, he was just a great moral teacher. He did not come principally to teach. He didn't even come principally to heal. When you listen to the, and I try to bring this out, especially at daily mass, which, by the way, many, many more of you could go to. <laughs> just saying, just saying. If you can, 9 o'clock. Well, not this week, right? But next week, just stir it up again. Um, okay, this is one of the things I really do try to bring out is, you know, he's annoyed a lot when people say, heal this, heal this, heal this. And he's a perturbed, he even says it. Remember the one uh, a while back where he calls the woman a dog, right? She's a non-Jew and, and uh, um, you know, and she's like, well, even the dogs get scraps, which is like one of the greatest comebacks in history. Um, but he's annoyed, you know, because his mission was not just to heal everybody. Okay, I'll heal this person. I'll just heal this person. I mean, because God could have done that. Why didn't God do that? Why didn't God just heal everybody? Why didn't everybody just get in a line, like communion, like he'd have to do it that way? He could have just been like, <laughs> like a Jedi mind trick. <laughs> You're all healed. <laughs> You're all healed. And it's over. We're all happy and healed, and, but he didn't do that. <sighs> because he didn't come to heal us of physical maladies or ailments and he didn't come to make everything great, and, and he didn't come to make this world what it was not and is not. Not yet. He came for one reason. He came to earth to suffer and to be killed. Uh, Archbishop Fulton Sheen says, uh, Jesus is the, the only man ever to be born solely that he would die. It's the only reason he became man. I mean, the soul, I, it's not like he didn't, I mean, you can have multiple reasons, but his, his goal, right, the thing that he was trying to achieve, and clearly the other stuff was necessary because he can't just go and die and no one's there, right? I'm going to go die on the cross. Well, you kind of have to tell people about it. You have to explain what's going on. God has to reveal his plan. He's got to bring some people along because he wants to found a church, Right? He wants people to get it because he doesn't want it just to be that generation. He wants it to go. He wants it to continue. Just like the people of God, the Kahal with Abram, Abraham, so with the church. He wants it to continue. So, and again, this is great because he's constantly referring to when he, before, you know. And so for, the, for those of us who struggle with belief, even if, even if we've never been a strict atheist, I've never been a, an atheist, maybe some of you have, but... But I think all of us struggle with certain elements of belief. And so here's a man who struggled with the whole thing. 
And he's really upfront with it. Now, before I became Christian, I was under the impression the first thing Christians had to believe was one particular theory as to what the point of this dying was. According to that theory, God wanted to punish men for having deserted and joined the great rebel. But Christ volunteered to be punished instead, and so God let us off. And he says, really, this is, a, this is kind of a silly thing, that God, Jesus just, I'll do it. You know, everybody's got to die. I'll do it. It's too simplistic, all right? It's a, bit, it's a bit silly. The central Christian belief, and this is true. This is true of every Christian, all right? And, and this, is, this is why um, the church will say that, that, that Mormons, strictly speaking, are not Christian because of who they believe and what they believe Jesus is or what they don't believe, or rather what they believe all of us are. Anyway doesn't matter. But the, the central Christian belief of this, you can't be Christian without this. So whatever religion you are, if you're Christian, you've got to believe it. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. There's all kinds of theories about how it happened, right? There's all kinds of theologies and explanations, but that's the central thing. Christ's death put us right with God and gave us a new start. That's the central, that's, the, that's what's called the, the kerygma. Here, another Greek word. It's Greek day. Uh, kerygma. Kerygma. Right, the good news. The good news, the gospel, the good news. What did Jesus do? He died for our sins, and he put us right with God. And we have a fresh start because of it. Um. And so then he goes on talking about all these different theories and that the theory doesn't really matter. Like, as long as you assent to that, like, if you don't understand the theory or any one of the theories, fine. Now, this is his opinion. I'd like you to understand the central theory, personally, because I'm your priest and I care about what you know. Um, so I'd like you to get this down. It's not too hard. And you've probably heard it before. But, but I do agree with him. The theory doesn't really matter. Um, so that even all the classes we do, like, to incorporate some of it and go, oh, I kind of get a better picture. And if that's where you're at, fine. But you gotta, you got to have this. Jesus died for you. He forgave your sins and put you right with the Father and gave you a fresh start. We have to have that first, right? And, and I think as Catholics, we get wrapped up in all kinds of other stuff sometimes, um, which are, and it's not that they're not important, but if we lose this, we lose that personal connection for what Jesus did for me. He died for me. And he loved me on that cross. And he knew that I would commit all kinds of sins. And he died for me. And he felt everything. Everything, even the desertion of his father. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He felt the absence of God on that cross for me, for you. That's just overwhelming. So, we can't lose that, you know? That's so important. Okay, so he goes on about that. I'm going to skip ahead here because that's why you read the book. <laughs> we are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying he disabled death itself. That's the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. All of the other theories are you know, our, our sort of ske schematics and, and the rest, and they're helpful, but 
but that's it. He died for us. By dying, he disabled death itself. And he didn't end death. He disabled death. Death no longer has power. Death is no longer the end, right? That there's something after death. There's no longer eternal. There was no salvation prior to Christ, right? I mean, there was like, well, some people will go to Sheol and, and they, I mean, it was, it was kind of obscure, really, what the Jews believed. Some rest in the bosom of Abraham, and what is that like? I don't even know if I'd want to do that. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I wouldn't. And, you know, and then the other ones are in sort of the place of the dead sort of thing. Uh, they didn't have a concept of hell. It wasn't like that. Um, okay. So, what was our predicament? The sort of hole man had gotten himself into. Again, it was the sin of Satan. He had tried to set up on his own, to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Oh, that's great. Have any of you ever been a rebel? I don't know if you want to volunteer that, but I've been a rebel. who had to lay down my arms a few times even as a priest. I mean, we, we just do this. We think we know. We think we know better, and we do it our way, and it doesn't work out, and then finally we surrender. You know, And, and we, a lot of us do this many times throughout life, but that's what it, it's not just that we need to be better, like a self-improvement plan, you know, like, well, maybe if I watch Oprah every day, I'll be better. <laughs> Dr. Phil... Maybe if I just, I just got to improve myself. It's not a self-improvement plan. We're rebels who must lay down our arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor. That is the only way to get out of a hole. This process of surrender, this movement, full speed astern, is what Christians call repentance. And repentance is no fun at all. It's something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. Repentance. What, who came before Jesus? Who was the precursor? John the Baptist. What did he preach? A baptism of? Because you can't receive Jesus before you repent. You have to repent first you got to create the space. I am not God. I don't know better. My will is not best. God's will is best. I have to repent of my sinfulness first. He continues, it means killing a part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. In fact, it needs a good man to repent. And here's the catch. This is, it. This, this is one to highlight. Here's the catch. Only a bad person needs to repent. But only a good person can repent perfectly. The worse you are, the more you need it, and the less you can do it. The only person who could do it perfectly would be a perfect person, and he wouldn't need it. Does that make sense? Right? So if, perfect repentance takes a perfect man, but none of us are perfect, so we can't perfectly repent for our sins. And the worse we are, you know, Lewis and... Who else? George. I'll pick on the guys. The ladies are all wonderful. <laughs> I know who makes food. 
No, you know, I mean, so, so, right? I mean, that makes sense. The worse we are, the harder it is to repent. So it takes a perfect person to re- repent perfectly. And here we are. This is the doctrine of atonement. Remember, this repentance, this willing submission to humiliation and a kind of death is not something God demands of you before he will take you back and which he could let you off if he chose. It's the description of what going back to him is like. That's what it means to go back to him, is to die. I mean, as Catholics, die to self, right? We die to self. Offer it up. It's, it's in our language. It's, 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 it's all around us, these concepts and these ideas. This is where it comes from. The, the seed of it is here, and then it, it gets filtered out into, you know, uh, different euphemisms and, and, and pious sort of statements. Offer it up. What's that about? Dying to self. Dying over and over. If you're going to be a good husband or a good wife, you have to die to self for the other. You just have to. If you're going to be a good priest, you have to die to self for your people. You can't prefer your own will or you're a bad priest. I've been both. We've all been both. So this is what it means to go back to him, to die to self, to submit. And if you ask God to take you back without it, you're really asking him to let you back without going back. It can't happen. So we must go through with it. But the same badness which makes us need it makes us unable to do it. (sighs) So how do we do it if we're so bad? We need it, but we can't do it. Can we do it if God helps us? That's the answer. Yes. But what do we mean when we talk of God helping us? Well, we mean that God puts a little bit of himself into us, so to speak. He lends us a bit of his reasoning powers, and that's how we think. He puts a little of his love into us, and that's how we love one another. When you teach a child writing, you hold its hand when it forms the letters. That is, it forms the letters because you are forming them. We love and reason because God loves and reasons and holds our hand while we do it. Now, if we had not fallen... That would all be plain sailing. But unfortunately, we now need God's help in order to do something which God in his own nature never does. To surrender, to suffer, to submit, to die. Nothing in God's nature corresponds to this process at all. So that the one road for which we now need God's leadership most of all is a road God in his own nature has never walked. God can share only what he has. This thing, in his own nature, he has not. So that's the predicament. We need to repent. We need to die. We need to submit. But the worse we are, the less we can do it and the more we need it. So we can't really do it on our own. Which is, by the way, a heresy. It's called Pelagianism. But anyway, um, we can't do it on our own. We need God's help to do it. So, But how is God going to help us suffer and die and submit? God doesn't do that because... Why would the divine Godhead need to suffer? He doesn't need to suffer. God is perfect, right? God doesn't need anything. God, and God doesn't change. God in his nature doesn't change. So in that sense, God, according to the theologians, God couldn't do it anyway. And then you say, well, well, then does that mean that God can't do everything? Well, that's right. God can't be, you know, if I say, well, a circle is, is a square, you'd say, well, that's stupid. You wouldn't say, well, that's, you know, that's, that's impossible. That doesn't, if God can't make a circle into a square, that doesn't limit his, 
his uh, omnipotence, his, you know, his, his power, it's, it's just illogical, you know, to say that, that God should do something which is completely logically inconsistent. So God can't do that which he is not. So, because it'd be like saying, well, God could become Satan. Well, that's ridiculous. Podcasters, I dropped my mic. To say, you know, God could become Satan is ridiculous. Just as ridiculous as saying that men become angels. Because we cannot become what we are not. We are human beings. So God, how how does the divine nature suffer? You see the punchline, I'm sure, because I'm setting it up so laboriously (laughs) on purpose. But supposing God became man. Suppose our human nature, which can suffer and die, was amalgamated with God's nature in one person. Then that person could help us. He could surrender his will and suffer and die because he was man. And he could do it perfectly because he was God. You and I can go through this process only if God does it in us. But God can can do it only if he becomes man. Our attempts at this dying will succeed only if we men share in God's dying, just as our thinking can succeed only because it is a drop out of the ocean of his intelligence. But we cannot share God's dying unless God dies, and he cannot die except by becoming a man. That is the sense in which he pays our debt and suffers for us what he himself need not suffer at all. So for there to be an atonement for the sins of all humanity. We couldn't just pick Ted and Bill and say, eh, let's kill them. You know, pick a few others. Laurieann. How, how, how much blood would it take to atone for the sins of all humanity? No offense, but none of you are perfect. Laurieann's closer, but none of you are perfect. <laughs> And so you couldn't, you couldn't make a perfect, none of us could make a perfect sacrifice of ourselves to atone for all of the sins of all of humanity throughout all of history, past, present, future. It would take a perfect man, right? It would take a perfect man who could suffer perfectly, who could die perfectly, and whose sacrifice would be the sacrifice of perfection itself. It takes God, but God can't do it in his nature. So he becomes man and joins forever the divine nature with the human nature. That's why theology says that when Jesus dies, his human nature dies, but his his divine nature doesn't die. I don't know if you knew that. His divine nature doesn't die because divine nature can't die, but his human nature dies. He can do it in his humanity. Right? He can do it in his humanity. I've heard some people complain that if Jesus was God as well as man, then his sufferings and death lose all value because it must have been easy for him. Right? I've thought of that. Haven't you thought of that? Well, Jesus died, but he was God, so it was easier. I mean, others may rebuke the ingratitude and ungraciousness of this objection, which is a good point. What does it matter if it was easier? It still accomplished the goal. And he says, what staggers me is the misunderstanding it betrays. In one sense, of course, those who make it are right. They have even understated their own case. The perfect submission, the perfect suffering, the perfect death were not only easier to Jesus because he was God, but they were possible only because he was God. But surely that's a very odd reason for not accepting them. The teacher is able to form the letters for the child because the teacher has grown up and knows how to write. That, of course, makes it easier for the teacher. 
and only because it is easier for him can he help the child. If it rejected him because, well, it's easy for grown-ups and waited to learn writing from another child who could not write itself and had no unfair advantage, it would not get on very quickly. If, if I'm drowning in a rapid river, a man who still has one foot on the bank may give me a hand which saves my life. Ought I shout back between my gasps, no, it's not fair, you have an advantage. You're keeping one foot on the bank. <laughs> that advantage, call it unfair if you like, is the only reason why he can be of any use to me. To what will you look for help if you will not look to that which is stronger than yourself? That's why you ask for help. So yes, it was easier for God because he's God. But then again, that's the very reason his suffering and death could do and accomplish what it accomplished in the first place. It necessitated him being who he is. Whether it was easier for him or not, it's hard to say. I mean, one might, one might argue given that he, he, would, he could perfectly die means he could perfectly suffer Ergo, his suffering was greater, and he experienced it in his humanity than anybody who's ever suffered. And one of the things, let me, uh, let me get on to this. So, so Lewis is talking about, well, you know, God puts a little bit of himself into us. Right? Oh, I guess he gets with that in the last chapter. So let me just do that. I'll just kind of skip through the last chapter 5, because he talks about that the, the, uh, in chapter 5. Right? In Christ, a new kind of man appeared, and the new kind of life which began in him is put into us. And it's interesting, the three things he, point, he, he points out. I remember reading this as a teenager and thinking, wow, this, this sounds really Catholic. He says there are three things that spread the Christ life to us. Baptism, belief, and the mysterious action which different Christians call by different names. Holy Communion, the Mass, the Lord's Supper. At least those are the three ordinary methods. I'm not saying there won't be other methods, etc. But those are the three ordinary methods, and that's what we believe. In baptism, what happens? We're, we're made a child of Christ. We're brought into um, divine union with Christ. And, and so this is really amazing to think about. So, so the second person of the Trinity, the divine nature, takes on our human nature, suffers and dies, rises again, and ascends. Jesus Christ remains both 100% God and 100% man. For all of eternity, he is united humanity and divinity. So in heaven, Jesus is still a man. He's still, you know, he's glorified, but he's still a man. The cool thing then is he sends the Holy Spirit and he says, what I have, I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you this union, or Lewis says amalgamation, this this mixing together of your human nature and my divine nature. That which I have, you're going to get that. And the, the first way he does that is through baptism. That's what baptism does. You know, he puts, and what do we call that life? It's a G word. This is really important. Oh, you're all going to fail. Grace. Grace. Sanctif oh, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, we knew that, Father. I know you did. Sanctifying grace. He puts sanctifying grace. That's what the baptism thing does. Sanctifying grace in the soul. Couldn't have it before. What is sanctifying grace? Divine life. And, and as Thomas says, St. Thomas Aquinas, he says that the grace 
um, becomes like a habit. It's, it's a habitus. It inhabits the soul. I mean, the soul isn't here. It's over here. I'm just kidding. It's a spirit. <laughs> the soul is a spiritual, you know, the spiritual principle, the form of the person. But, but so, so God's grace inhabits the soul. And what does it do there? Well, it's like miracle grow. You know, it keeps conforming us more and more to the divine nature. It keeps perfecting us. It keeps helping us. And so the life of a Catholic is keeping the grace in the soul. Because as long as the grace is in the soul, we keep being remade more and more perfectly into the image of Christ. That's why the sacraments. Why do I got to go to Mass on Sunday? That. The grace. You need the grace. The Eucharist. Why well, just went last week? <laughs> you need it more. Because it's more is better in this case. More is not just more. More is better. You know? Well, so I should go to every single Mass? No, you can overdo it, of course, just like everything in religion. You can over you can overdo it. But but that's why we do it. The grace. You just the repent, repent. And then why do you go to confession? Because if you sin mortally, I mean you can confess venial sins, but you don't lose the 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 grace inhabiting your soul. But if you sin mortally, and we'll do a class on this. Um, I already decided we'll do a class on this after we're done with Lewis, but it'll be one of them. But if you sin mortally, what do you lose? The sanctifying grace in the soul. How do you get it back? Well, how did you lose? What did you lose? You lost the relationship. It's like cutting off the relationship, you know, between ourselves and, and the resurrected Lord. We cut off the relationship. The grace no longer inhabits the soul. We want it. We need it back. How do we get it back? We have to say we're sorry. Well, can I just say I'm sorry to God? Well, it's one of those things where, you know, if I offend Lewis, like maybe I already offended you tonight, you know, if I offended Lewis in a little way, he'd probably be like, ah, you know, Father John, he's a good guy. It's fine. But let's say I did something really bad, you know. Let's say I really offended you. Well, I need to go to Lewis and look him in the eye, man to man, and say, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry for offending you. I, I gotta, it's got to be more formal, right? Confession. That's all it is. It takes an extraordinary act because of the extraordinary sin. The extraordinary offense necessitates an extraordinary act. It just makes human sense why we would do it that way. Why a priest? Why Father John? I don't know. I mean, that's the way the Lord set it up. He wanted that human connection, right? The, all the sacraments. He wants that, that human earthly connect, bread and wine and water, oil, knuckleheads like me. He, he, he wants to use what he created to bring about his grace, to manifest his grace. He, he, because it's good. I'm, I'm good. You're good. Creation is good. So he uses the goodness. And it's also in doing so, it's a way of him renewing the universe, which ultimately one day, you know, will definitively occur. Okay, so I'm going to skip. Oh, he does talk about. Oh, no, I, he didn't really say grace. But he talks about that's what being in Christ, when he refers to being in Christ, that's, what, that's how we would talk about it. What does it mean to be a person in Christ? It means to have our identity founded on Christ. My identity is not first that I'm a Green Bay Packer fan. That is part of my identity. Or that I, I'm a musician. That's part of my identity. Um, that I read obscure philosophers or I don't know. I mean, whatever. Pick whatever you want. Um, my, my primary identity needs to be that I am a man in Christ, that it's Christ who gives me my identity through baptism, through the sacraments, through my vocation. And that's how now 
all this stuff is going on in the soul, reforming us, retooling us, and ultimately helping us to grow our capacity to love. Because if we can grow our capacity to love in this life, then in eternity, our, our capacity to love God is greater. We'll be able to love God greater than perhaps others. That's why, this, that's why the saints are so great, because they've opened themselves up in such a way that they're able to love God to a greater degree. And, and so are you saying there are, there are hierarchies of that in heaven? Yeah, it seems as though that's kind of what the tradition alludes to. You know, is that there are great ones in heaven, and, and everybody in heaven is great. Lewis talks about this in The Great Divorce. It's fantastic. It's awesome. But um, the reason is because they grew their capacity to love. That's why marriage is so important, learning how to sacrifice, the mutual sacrifice and self-giving and growing your ability to love, you know. And even if you're not married, like me, you know, in, in, or if you're a widow or widower, or whatever it is, still God's working on us. How can, how can we love more? How can we grow in our empathy and our compassion and, and et cetera? The more that we grow in that, the more that ultimately, I mean, the greater joy we're going to have in heaven. Okay, thank you very much.